But until that point, open your Bibles with me to Matthew, the end of Matthew 23 and the beginning of Matthew 24. You are going to notice in your sermon notes and in your bulletins that uh, the text for today is Matthew 24, verses 3 to 14. And that was absolutely my intention right up until about last night. Um, when, as I'm going through and editing and condensing things, I do condense things. You don't believe me, but I do. Um, as I'm doing that, uh, there's no way for me to make adequate progress all the way through verse 14 in a way that I think is going to be clear and helpful for us moving forward. So today, we are going to cover verses 3 through 8. So the very last one of those things in your notes, the third main point, you can scratch that right out. Um, for those of you that that brings a glimmer of hope to, it won't shorten the sermon. Uh, it'll just mean that the content is better dispersed. Um, so take heart or pray, whatever you need to do to that, but we'll get through it. It was really helpful over the last couple of weeks um, while I was gone and then while I was here, but kind of transitioning back in, uh, to have Dr. Bealey and Walter Lapotka come up here. Uh, I don't... It does a pastor's heart great good to know that he can be away from the pulpit and to know that there are men who are trustworthy and who put a tremendous amount of time and effort into opening God's word clearly and accurately. And I think you need to know that that is a reflection of how much they love and care for you as a body. So please encourage them as appropriate after they do those things. It is a tremendous blessing to you that I want to make sure you don't take for granted. And as we come into this portion of Matthew 24 and 25, uh, we are going to be dealing with some very unique things in Matthew's gospel, really in any of the gospel accounts and really in any of our uh, Bibles. We're going to be dealing heavily with what we call eschatology, and uh, that's kind of a fancy $5 theological word for some of you. Eschatology just means the study of the end. It is the study of what is coming, when, uh, not necessarily what is coming next week, but what is coming at the consummation, at the wrap-up of all of human history. And there's a definition in your bulletins there, and I want to make sure you have that because we'll refer to that word several times over the next uh, few weeks as we work through this. Matthew 24 and 25 move us forward to what is coming in the end. And when we hear things like eschatology, and when we hear things like the end times, we, we tend to respond one of two ways. There are some people who immediately on hearing those things plug their ears and start singing Jesus Loves Me and say, that is complicated, it's difficult, I don't understand it, there seems to be a lot of argument, and so I'm just going to believe in my heart uh, that it will all work itself out in the end, that Jesus has a plan and it's all going to be all right, and so I don't really need to be too concerned about those things. Now, in one sense, that's absolutely true. Jesus absolutely has a plan. God knows exactly what is going to come, and yes, God will be victorious in the end. There will be nothing left undone, nothing left unresolved uh, in his coming and his establishment of his kingdom. However, all scripture is inspired by God and has been given to us because it is useful, it is profitable for teaching, for training, for reproof, for correction, for instructing us. That includes things like prophecy and eschatology. It includes things like Hebrew poetry. It includes all those parts of the scripture that sometimes our Bibles remain stuck together a lot longer than they should. Just because something requires a second reading, just because something might have disagreement, even within faithful bodies of believers, does not mean that we turn our attention away from it because God has given it to us for our good. It has been given to us to challenge us, to equip us, to encourage us, to humble us, to exalt God. And so we don't dare take those things lightly or ignore them completely. And the second response kind of swings the other way, and that is that some of us uh, love the idea of eschatology and knowing what's coming so much that we dig in deeply. 
and we sink our theological talons into a particular theological position, and that becomes how we define what is orthodox or what's accepted among the faith. In other words, if you think like I do about the end, then that's the ultimate measure of whether or not you're a faithful, faithful believer. And everyone else is deceived and misled and can't possibly be on the same gospel team that I am. I have definite theological understandings about what is coming. This church has very specific statements in our doctrinal statement about some things that are coming in the end, and I firmly and wholeheartedly hold on to those things. However, we had also better be careful to recognize that there are faithful brothers and sisters who will disagree on a number of details here. It does not make them the enemy, and it also does not make us both right. And so even as we pursue these things, and even as we have good God-honoring discussion and maybe debate, if we can use that word in a sanctified term, on these things, it ought to sharpen us. The fact that there are things that we are still learning and growing and developing and ought to continually bring us to humility and submission to the fact that God is sovereign and has a plan and that his ways are and always will be higher than our ways. So with that, we're going to jump into Matthew 24. We're going to, word, we're going to work through verses 3 through 8 today, and essentially what we're going to see is the start of the signs of the times. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 3, this is what God's word says. As he, that is Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See to it that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are but the beginning of the birth pains. Will you pray with me? Lord, I ask that you would be with us today. I ask that you would open up our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. And I ask specifically today for clarity uh, in a portion of scripture that begins to cause confusion and even dissension. Lord, help us to be clear. Help us to be humble. Help us to understand who you are and what you've done, what you've revealed to us and why it matters. Lord, above all, make us obedient to what you have called us to be and do. Lord, we desperately need your help to do all of those things. And so we ask in Christ's name, amen. Back in high school, I can specifically and distinctly remember being in a math class and being so frustrated that I had utterly and completely given up. Now, a part of that frustration was due to the fact that for the first large portion of the semester, I had chosen not to pay very much attention. I might or might not have been a little bit more chatty in class than I should have, and it didn't help me because math tends to build on itself, and if you miss one concept, it's very difficult to get the next concept, and before you know it, you're three chapters behind, and it's frustrating. Another part of that dealt with the fact that the teacher genuinely did not like me. Now, some of that very well might have had to do with the fact that I didn't pay attention well in the first part of the semester. I acknowledge that. 
But there was a, a personal thing there where there was a disconnect that he had gone to the Naval Academy and he knew that I wanted to go to the Air Force Academy. And he actually told me in the middle of class in front of everyone that the only way I was going to get the recommendation from my congressman to get into the Air Force Academy was if he was drunk, stupid, or related to me. And while I cannot vouch for the first two, I do know that we were not relatives and I still got in, so there was that. But by the time I got three quarters of the way through the semester, I was so lost, I, I, I didn't even know what questions to ask. At that point, had I become engaged in the class, I wouldn't have even really had an understanding of how to ask a question that would have gotten me the information that I really needed. Uh, why do I tell you that? Uh, not just because I'm terrible at math and that's part of my justification for it, but because we are coming to a time here when the disciples are asking a question and Jesus is going to give the longest answer of any question that we have in our New Testament. It's two chapters worth of his answer to one very particular question. And if we miss the question, if we miss the motivation, and if we miss the perceptions behind that, it makes these next two chapters very, very difficult to work through. And so we are going to spend a significant amount of time this morning setting up kind of, as Dr. Bailey and others have said, build a big porch for a small house. To understand why they ask this question, what are some of their motivations, what is some of the confusion and what is some of the hope that comes across even in what they ask? Because we're going to see that the question that they ask has a great deal of assumption behind it. But the key part of their assumption turns out to be a, a false assumption. So we're going to work through that. And the first thing that we're going to see, if we look at 24 verse 3, that's the question that they ask. And it reveals their confusion. It reveals their hope, it reveals their understanding, but it reveals a, a great deal of their confusion. And I want to read that. Matthew 24, verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And again, if we miss that question, or if we kind of deviate from the fact that that question undergirds all of these things, then we really start to miss things and take pieces and pull them way out of context. That question, although we're starting with it this week, doesn't come out of nowhere. We've tried very, very hard to work the whole context of this Passion Week into the disciples' responses, into Christ's responses, so that we understand why things are unfolding the way that we are. We forget the human component of this sometimes, and we can't, because now the disciples are coming to Jesus and they're asking him, what is the sign of your coming in the end of the age? When is all of this going to happen? And this question, I think, really begins to build, not in Matthew 24 or even 23, but really as far back as Matthew chapter 13. You don't have to turn there, but we're going to begin to develop the context of this question so that it helps us understand in the weeks that come. Because remember, before Matthew chapter 13, the teaching of Jesus is very clear, and it's really mirrored the teaching of John the Baptist. What has been the focal point of their message? Repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is the central focus. That is the focal point statement, really, of the Sermon on the Mount. It's all an outworking of that. But by the time you come to Matthew chapter 13, something changes. No longer is the preaching, repent for the kingdom of hand, is at hand. Now Jesus begins to explain the kingdom in terms of parables. And we talked about that because parables reveal truth to some. Parables for some, for those to whom it has been granted, Jesus says, parables will take what is spiritual and maybe confusing and put it to very physical, tangible concepts and make it clear. Parables reveal truth to some, but to the majority of the people listening, the parables obscured the truths of the kingdom. Repent for the kingdom is at hand 
is much more easily understood than the kingdom of heaven is like. And those same parables that reveal truth to his disciples will now begin to obscure truth from the crowds, from those who are hard-hearted, from those who refuse to hear. And after that point, more and more time, he'll still address the crowd, certainly, but more and more time is spent directly preparing his disciples for what is going to come. In chapter 16, Peter makes that great confession of faith. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And from that time on, we're told that Jesus begins to tell them that he must go to Jerusalem. And what's going to happen to Jesus in Jerusalem? He's going to be handed over, he's going to suffer, he's going to die, and he's going to be raised again. In Matthew chapter 17, three of the disciples see a glimpse of Jesus Christ in his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. And woven into the text from there on are these descriptions of what the kingdom is and what the kingdom is not, who enters the kingdom and who does not enter the kingdom. But kingdom teaching actually begins to tick up in frequency. The greatest in the kingdom is like this little child. It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Jesus, we've given up everything for you. What's left for us? When I come and when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you too will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who's given up land or family for my sake will receive back even more. The kingdom is like a master who hires laborers for his vineyard. James and John bring mom along and they say, we want positions of honor in the kingdom. And he says, to be great in the kingdom, you're going to be the servant and even the slave of all. exaltation and humility glory in the kingdom humility in the kingdom and now you come to Matthew 21 and Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem the place of the kings of Israel to the cheers of hundreds of thousands it is not the six people poorly dressed on the flannel graph with Jesus and the happy disciples around the donkey this is a mass of people Pilgrims streaming in from the north, from the south, from the east, from the west uh, to celebrate the feast of Passover. Those from the villages who have heard and seen what Jesus has just done as he comes in, the throngs of people that were already in the city coming out to meet him. And you have this mass of people coming out to greet this one and screaming, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he goes to the temple and he cleanses the temple. He drives out the money changers and those that had been buying and selling and really those that had completely corrupted what the temple was supposed to be. And instead of the prophet center, those have been driven out. Now the lame and the blind come in and they receive healing. And the son teaches the words of the father. And Messiah possesses his temple. And the religious leaders come and they challenge him over and over again and he responds to them perfectly. He dismantles their arguments. He completely establishes his authority in that situation. Now you're the disciples. And you know, at least you think you know, who this is. And somehow he has said, I'm going to Jerusalem to be handed over and to be put to death. Well, by the time we get here to Tuesday afternoon, is there anything that would make you think that's even a possibility? If anything, every circumstance that surrounded Jesus coming into Jerusalem up to this point 
has made you think that the kingdom is not only possible, that the kingdom is now. He is ready to take control of this situation. And then at the end of chapter 23, woe, woe, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And Dr. Bealey pointed us back to Isaiah chapter 5 and this rejection of the false worship of a nation and the woes that would come. And they would think this has to be it. He is purifying his people exactly as the Messiah is going to do. And then you come to Matthew 23, 37, and Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. And you got to think, what? He says, your house is left to you desolate. He's talking to a people, to the Jewish people. Your house is being left to you desolate, undone, and you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There is judgment coming and separation. That sticks if you have a particular kingdom expectation right there. And then we went through the first couple of verses of 24. They walk out, and can you imagine them walking up the side of the Mount of Olives, probably on their way back to Bethany where they'll spend the night, and in the setting sun, glistening off the white stones surrounding the temple. And all the adornment that was ready for the feast, the festival that was there that week. It would have been an absolutely stunning sight. Is it any wonder that the disciples' eyes and minds are drawn back to that? And they say, look, look at this grand temple. Why else? Because when Messiah comes, do you know where he rules from? Ezekiel says that his feet and his throne rule from the temple. Don't miss that. In there, pointing that out to Jesus. Jesus, look at this. Jesus, that's your place. When that whole kingdom thing happens, Jesus, look at where you will be seated. If I'm them, my expectation is for him to say, I can't wait. Get ready, boys, it's coming. But what does he say? He says it's coming down. You, you see those stones that you can't even fathom the weight of? There's not going to be one left upon another. That is the context that brings us up to the question of tell us, when will these things be? What's going to be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? In that question of the disciples are things that they relate very, very closely. What is the sign of your coming? We know that you're coming. Apparently bad things are going to happen. But what is going to be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And that moves us into our second thing because they ask that question not only with the confusion that must have been present with everything else that's taken place, but they ask that question with a very, very particular cultural context surrounding it. The Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, does not come out of a vacuum. Their question does not come out of a vacuum. They have a very particular theological understanding. If we were to go back to the first century uh, of Jewish thought and writing, it would have been widely held that before Messiah comes, there is a time of trouble. One of the knocks against my particular brand of dispensational eschatology is that it's fairly new, that the idea of tribulation and a time of trouble before Messiah comes back is fairly new. It was deeply ingrained in first century Jewish thought, and that didn't come out of nowhere. That's built on what the prophets wrote. As the disciples ask this question, what are the signs of your coming and the end of the age? They put his coming and the end of the age together for a reason. Because as the prophets talk about what is going to happen when Messiah comes back, 
when Messiah rules and establishes his kingdom centered around Jerusalem, they write that out of hundreds of years of understanding that that is what God has said is going to happen. So while they're struggling with their confusion, they also bring a great deal of biblical context to this that we are fairly ignorant of. Sometimes we read through the prophets and we read through the familiar sections, and lots of times those smaller, minor prophets are the crispy pages in our Bible. We're going to turn to a few of those. So if you want to get into your Bible and open it up there to Jeremiah 30, that's going to be a good place to start. But I want to take some time to establish prophetically what they were expecting because that is going to help us understand why they assume what they assume. If you go to Jeremiah chapter 30, Jeremiah writes about what is going to come when Israel is finally punished for her sins. Now, as you're getting there, I want you to understand that the prophets continually warned the people against their sin. God made his covenant with you. He called you to obedience, and he said, where you are obedient, I will bless you. But where you are disobedient, there are curses, up to and including being removed from the land. I will cast you out like I did the people before you. And the prophets would repeatedly say, if you don't, then God will. If you do not obey, then God will deal justly with you and remove you from the land. But as you read through the prophets, there's this continual time of restoration that's promised. God will judge you, God will remove you, but God will not forget you. He will move you back into the land. And the tendency is to say, well, that historically happened. Assyria comes in and wipes out the northern kingdom, the northern ten tribes. Babylon later comes in and wipes out the southern kingdom of Judah. And God's people are dispersed and cast out of the land. But under Cyrus, they're allowed to return. And surely that's what's going to happen. Jeremiah 30, verse 1 says this, The word that came from Jeremiah from the Lord, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord. I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. And we can read that and say, great, that happened. Under Cyrus, they returned, they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, they rebuilt the temple, it wasn't as great as it was before, but they rebuilt it and they had their place. The problem is, as you continue to read through places like Jeremiah 30, the restoration that they experienced doesn't seem to match up with the restoration that God promised. Because in Jeremiah 30, verse 8, it says, So come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off of your neck. I'll burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will rise up for them, raise up for them. Israel never experienced a time when they weren't under foreign oppression. A king of David never again sat on the throne. Look down to Jeremiah 30, verse 21. Their prince shall be one of themselves. Their rulers shall come out from their midst. I will make him draw near, and he will approach me. For who would dare of himself to approach me, declares the Lord. And in verse 22, he says, And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. They were promised a ruler that wasn't a Caesar, that wasn't a Herod, that was someone from among the people. And in that day, there would be a massive return to the Lord on behalf of the nation. And they hadn't seen it yet. Flipping your Bibles over to Ezekiel, or again, you can read along with us. Ezekiel, one of the more exciting prophets to read, lots of great word pictures, and uh, boy, if you think my sermons get edgy sometimes, I got nothing on Ezekiel. 
and I'll let you read through those things. But in Ezekiel chapter 37, the same chapter where he talks about dry bones and the restoration of Israel, Ezekiel 37, verse 24, my servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell, shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. There's going to be a Davidic king ruling over an established land in peace. And they hadn't seen it yet. The Jewish anticipation is restoration, peace, prosperity, and submission to a Davidic king. But before that happens, there's also this anticipation of a time of great trouble. You don't have to turn there, but we see it in places like Joel, one of the minor prophets. Joel 1 and 2 talks about judgment that is coming, and Joel phrases it uh, according to what he calls the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord becomes this picture of a dark and terrible time of judgment and refinement. Joel chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of thick clouds and darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people like there has never been before, nor will there be again after them through all the years of all generations. There is a judgment that is coming that is going to be unlike anything after it. And yet, Joel chapter 2, verse 11, the Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Who can stand in this judgment? This is what God says, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. Tear your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love, and one who relents over disaster. Even in his judgment, he calls for the repentance of the people. Joel chapter 2, verse 32, a little bit later, I'm sorry, verse 30, says, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The, the idea is that there is this coming judgment and there are signs in the heavens and on the earth that accompany this judgment but it is also going to demand the repentance of the people. Flip over a couple of pages with me, if you would, to the book of Amos. A lot of gold leaf cracking today. It's okay. This is good stuff. Amos is writing to a divided kingdom, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And what is happening at this time is Israel and Judah are bemoaning the nations around them. God, why don't you do something about all these sinful people? And God says, I'm going to judge the people. But right smack in the middle of Amos, he reminds Israel that they are no better. That just as God is not going to ignore the sins of the nations, God is not going to ignore the sins of his people. In Amos chapter 5, he says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? So remember that day of the Lord that Joel was talking about? The people were saying, yes, send that. God, come in your judgment and deal with all those terrible bad people. 
And Amos says, why do you want that? You're the bad people. Do not cry out for the day of the Lord, because in this day of the Lord, you are going to be one of the ones swept along with it. It's darkness, it's not light. It's as if, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned against the wall and a serpent bit him. You are assuming that this day of the Lord is going to bring peace and rest simply because you are Israel. No, it is going to bring judgment for you. And it's in that context that he says, that he says I hate your feasts, I hate your festivals, that your heart is far from me. And if you find your way to Amos chapter 9, Amos is a great book, but it's a tough book. It's nine chapters for a few verses of restoration at the end. But it's important. Amos chapter 9, beginning in verse 9, God says, Behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say disaster shall not overtake us. God is going to judge his people who assume that he will not. And then verse 11, in that day, in what day? In that day when he judges Israel, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the day of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. And then he goes on to continue saying, days are coming, days are coming when there's going to be unparalleled peace and prosperity. And by the time you come to places like Zechariah and Malachi, places that I won't even have you turn today because I don't want to run short on time, but you need to see that this isn't an isolated thing. We read from Zechariah at the start of our service today. There's a time coming when the nations are going to surround Jerusalem and they are going to be utterly cut off and devastated and the Lord is going to have to directly intervene on their behalf. He is going to come and touch the Mount of Olives. It is going to split. And then the Lord will be king over all the earth. The disciples ask this question, having read all of these things in a way that we have not. Lord, you removed us from the land, and you brought us back. But this restoration of the land doesn't look like how you promised. And so there's this anticipation that a day of trouble is coming, but in that day of trouble, Messiah comes close behind. Now Jesus says, your house is being left to you desolate. And that temple that is so grand is coming down. What do you think the disciples understood? If that is going to happen, Messiah comes close on the heels. And Jesus, I don't know how that's going to happen, but should we basically pack our bags tomorrow or are we going to need to wait till next week? Wrapped up in their anticipation and their expectation is that these things are coming and that they are coming quickly. And Jesus' answer is first and foremost the idea of they are not yet. Be patient and be prepared. They're asking about two big things. When is it and what's it going to look like? And the next two chapters, those are the questions Jesus answers. But he's going to start out by saying, this is when it's not. And that's not the way that we typically like to answer a question. When is this going to happen? Well, I'll tell you what it's not going to happen. What's it going to look like when I get ready for this? Well, I can tell you what it's not going to look like when you're ready for that. And that is the signs that Jesus begins to work through, and that's what we're going to start to work through today. 
He's preparing them for the idea that there's going to be a delay, but that that delay is still not out of the hands of God. When they see all these things, and they're going to see a number of things, I'm going to say that their false expectations and their false assumptions about the kingdom are going to be really helped along by understanding what false labor pains look like. As we move into verse 4, we're going to first see him warn his disciples not to be misled. So you can go back to Matthew, which it would be helpful if I did. There we go. When are these things going to happen? What's the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And in verse 4, Jesus says, don't be misled. Jesus answered them, see to it that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Now, why does Jesus need to tell them not to be led astray? And the simple answer is that we are a people, and they were a people, who are prone to being led astray. When people tell me what I want to hear, I become a lot less discerning. And if you are looking for the coming of the kingdom, and if trouble comes first, then if someone can give you a time limit to that trouble, it sounds very, very tempting to follow after that. People follow good news, and we see that all over the place, not only in our own context, but we see it in the Bible. Jeremiah is talking about judgment that is coming. Repent, purify yourselves, judgment is coming, the Lord is coming, and a bunch of false prophets come and say, Jeremiah does not know what he's talking about, it's not going to be that big of a deal, God's going to get over this, we're going to be fine. Guess who the people listen to? Not the one telling them that they are going to go into exile and they might have, they'd better prepare for a long stay there. We can get caught up in people that are going to tell us that our rough time is only going to be a short time. The temptation for the people waiting for the kingdom is going to be to listen to people who tell you that the kingdom is coming and is right now. Why does that matter to us? Because to be honest with you, I'm about as ready for the kingdom as I've ever been in my entire life. The last couple of years have been rough for all of us in a hundred thousand different ways. I am tired of the turmoil, I am tired of strife, I'm tired of division, and quite frankly, I'm tired of my own sin and how it contributes to the difficulty in my own life. And the older I get, I'm not sure the wiser I get, but I guarantee you the older I get, the more ready I am to see Christ and to be done with all of the things that make this life so painful sometimes. And this is the most general part of Christ's answer and it's tremendously helpful for me to remember that I'm not looking for a quick exit. And he says, many are going to come in my name saying, I'm the Christ, and they are going to lead many astray. People are going to come and claim to be the Messiah, to offer the hope of the kingdom right now, and that happened in the lifetime of the disciples. It happened in the 100 ADs. It happened as the church is being formed and founded, and it continues to happen today. Luke's gospel adds that those who are coming in his name will say, the time is at hand. In other words, one of the marks of the deceivers is that they claim to have specific knowledge of when the end is coming. Go look at how many cults and religious movements are based on the fact that somebody has predicted a specific date for the end of things. And Jesus told us way back in the beginning that that is a mark of deception. But we're drawn to it. Because life is hard. And if I knew exactly how long it was going to be hard for, I'd be better able to prepare myself mentally to deal with it. But, but you package this message with slick publishing and a nice title page, and it sells books. 
Every year, even the church, and again, this is not written to the church. This is a direct answer to the, to the questions of disciples, Jewish disciples in their context. But we are not a people that are prone to discernment. Eschatology sells, and bad eschatology sells really, really well. Millions of dollars of books worth bought explaining things like blood moons, and I'm sorry if that's what you've based your eschatology off of, I can have a long conversation with you. As believers, we are prone to open our mouths and swallow anything that is slickly packaged and force down them, and we'll continue to pay for it. You want to develop a biblical eschatology, start with the biblical record. Jesus says don't fall for it. You know me, you know what I've said. Don't go after every convincing counterfeit that you hear. Because the reality is deception isn't new, deception isn't going anywhere, and it's actually only going to escalate as we move toward the end. And from the warning not to be deceived, now he warns them not to be afraid. Because the reality is this world can be a frightening place. Look at verse six, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, see to it that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Until Christ returns, there are going to be wars and rumors of wars. And that is a consistent characteristic of humanity, isn't it? There's no place, there's no time, there's no people without conflict. Industrialized nations, first, third, fifth world, educated, uneducated, every place and every people is involved in conflict. Why is that? Because mankind, in their sin, wants what others have. And war is the natural expression of men chasing after their lusts and passions on a large scale. Conflict was a continual theme of the human experience and will continue to be a theme of the human experience. And to live under that kind of consistent conflict is an exhausting thing, isn't it? I mean, right now we're watching a war unfold half a world away uh, simply because a man thought that territory belonged to him because it used to belong to his people. And it impacts us every day. For the first time in my lifetime, I've had young men seriously ask questions about what it would look like to be drafted into the military if these things get out of hand. It's an exhausting way to live if you're always wondering about the next conflict. And what does Jesus say? He says, see to it that you're not alarmed. See to it that you don't live in fear. How is that possible? How is it possible to live in the context of continual wars and strife and struggling and not live in fear? Is it because war is not real? No, war is absolutely real. Is it because war can't touch you if you have enough faith? No, faithful men and women have died as a result of human conflict as innocent bystanders for centuries. How is it that Jesus can tell people who will undergo suffering not to be afraid? And part of the answer is in what he says next, for this must take place. The reminder is that this is not an accident. The world must have at some point seemed out of control to the disciples, don't you think? When your Messiah is hanging on the cross, it doesn't look like it's in control. When Jesus ascends back into heaven and you assumed he'd always be with you, things look out of control. When the church is persecuted and scattered, things look out of control. When you read of wars and rumors of wars and only an escalation of human conflict, things feel out of control. We need to remember that they are never, not for one moment, not to one degree, outside of the sovereign hand of God. 
These things must happen. God's plan will unfold in human history, even through human depravity and suffering. And not only must these things happen because God decreed that they will happen, but they must happen because this is not the kingdom. Every war, every rumor of war reminds us that Messiah is not yet ruling in his authority over all of the earth, over the nations. Does God rule the nations? Absolutely. Does God's throne ever diminish? Absolutely not. However, when the Messiah executes his perfect justice and judgment among the nations, wars and rumors of wars will no longer be a characteristic of the human experience. This reminds us that we are not there yet. These must happen because Messiah has not returned yet. So don't be afraid because you know who God is. Don't be misled because the end is not yet. In other words, wars and rumors of wars are not the sign that Christ is back. Now hear me, there are specific things that will indicate that the time is close. This isn't that part of the answer yet. What else is going to happen? Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places, not only conflict within humanity, but conflict, it would seem, in the natural realm itself, earthquakes, famines in various places, terrors uh, that happen not just because men go to war, but because the earth itself is impacted by the curse and by the fall. What's the reality? He says that all these things are but the beginning of birth pangs. All these things are the beginning of birth pains. I don't know about you, but I've never experienced false labor. Brandy has. By the time we uh, came to our fourth child, we thought Nathan was ready to go three weeks early before he actually came. Uh, All the signs were there. Uh, Pain, pressure, fatigue, and Brandy felt even worse. So bad, (laughs) so bad that we actually went to the hospital several times, and we weren't new to this. Nathan was the last one. We knew what it ought to look like. And every time we went in, the doctor said, not yet. Feels like the time, looks like the time, but it's not the time. Some of these men that Jesus is talking to are going to see things that seem like the end. Some of them are going to live past 70 A.D., and they're going to hear of this temple being torn down to the ground. They're going to hear of hundreds of thousands put to death in Jerusalem, and they're going to wonder, surely this has to be the end, because how could things get worse? And Jesus is going to remind them this is not the end. Because for the next 2,000 years, the birth pangs have continued. Now, why isn't that the most hopeless verse in the Bible? Why isn't that the saddest thing, to hear that things are tough and things are always going to be tough? Because I don't know if you've met him, but Nathan is 10 years old today. Not today. He's 10 years old now. And false labor doesn't mean no labor. False labor doesn't mean no baby. False labor indicates that it is coming. It is simply not yet. See, this isn't a disaster and this isn't hopeless because it reminds us that we're not in the kingdom yet. Every now and then, and more often now, I get asked, 
Is this war the war? Is it Gog and Magog? Is it these things that are specifically unfolding? And no one ever likes my answer when I say no, and they typically like it even less when I say it doesn't matter because we're missing the point. First of all, I think you're missing the timing on those things. It's an entirely different discussion. But more than that, every single war, every single earthquake, and every single famine has eschatological significance, not in the sense that it is the specific one mentioned in Scripture, but every single one ought to remind you that Christ is coming. Every single contraction reminds the woman that the baby is on the way. Every single thing, every single turmoil, every single war, every single strife in this world had better remind us that the king is coming again. And you can either get lost in the minutia and trying to predict a date, or you can be reminded that the king is coming and you had better be ready. And that there are people that you know that need to understand that the king is coming. What do we do with this? First of all, I hope that this is a hopeful eschatology. <laughs> that as we go through this, again, one of the particular arguments against my position is that it is kind of doom and gloom, that it is newspaper theology, and that you take the worst things of the world and you kind of root for them because you're hoping that it gets worse before it gets better. And you're all darkness and hoping for that. that that's not the case at all. First of all, humanity has not proven me wrong with their extent of how bad we can get. But more than that, to me, it would be ultimately frustrating to say that real change in this world depends on man getting it right. That it depends on us working hard to ensure that this place looks like the kingdom is supposed to look. I've seen how we do with making things look like the kingdom is supposed to look. We fail. There's great hope all the way through Matthew 24 and 25, not in that things are easy, but in the fact that Christ is coming. There's great hope in all of this that says that God is absolutely faithful to do exactly what he's promised and that none of this is a surprise to him. There's great hope and encouragement in this that God will preserve for himself a people even through unthinkable trial and testing. There's great hope in this that God keeps every one of his promises. So in all of these things, even as we argue over details and think carefully about timelines, let's be reminded that this all points to the perfect faithfulness of God. What do we do specifically? First of all, don't be deceived. We have to recognize that we are a people that are easily led astray. As soon as I stop thinking that I'm gullible, I have proven myself to be more gullible than ever. We have to be a people of great discernment, great wisdom, and great thinking, and not because you hear it slickly packaged, and certainly not because I say it on any given Sunday morning, but because we run everything back through God's Word. That is the source of our authority, it is the source of our wisdom, and it is the source of our information about what is coming and why it matters. Second, don't be afraid. The world has been and will continue to be a place of uncertainty and turmoil, and it can be frustrating, and it can be frightening. But for those who know Jesus, we don't have to be afraid. Not because we pretend that everything is fine and will be fine. Not because we pretend that everything is light and roses and sunshine and unicorns. But because we know that God works in and through every circumstance for our good. And not some temporary fake make you feel good paste on a smile. We know that when God brings tragedy or allows tragedy, that he works it for our real good, our lasting good, our eternal good. He uses it to shape us and refine us and make us more like him. He uses it to test and to strengthen our faith. And so a better exercise, uh, rather than asking what are you afraid of, is to really ask myself, why am I afraid if God is who I say he is? And finally, don't waste your time. When will these things happen is a good question. It is also a question Christ chose not to answer specifically. 
He did not give them a day or a year. He gave them signs, and what will come? He pointed back to the prophets and what they had written and said, he, he didn't destroy their hope. He didn't say, you know, the kingdom is spiritualized, it's different. He didn't say, you missed the kingdom or it's gone. He said, it's not here now. Be ready when it comes. For as many days as I've given you, do the work that I've entrusted to you. He's going to go on to say that you're going to die. How's that for juxtaposition? Don't be afraid and you're going to die. But he's going to say, do what I have called you to do until I return. You and I are prone not only to deception, but all right, maybe I'll just speak for me. I'm prone to wasting my time. And I can waste my time when I say that the end is coming at some point and it doesn't really matter uh, because if I never think about the end coming, then Jesus is never imminent in my mind. How differently would I live if I anticipated him coming this afternoon or by the time I wrapped up? Some of you are praying more fervently for his coming, I understand. I can also waste time by trying to delve into the minutia so deep that I miss the fact that my eschatology is not what defines me as a believer, but that whatever my eschatology happens to be, it ought to drive me toward obedience and preparation and readiness and a gospel presentation. The church understanding that there is an end, the church studying and understanding the coming of Christ ought to be a church that is provoked to action consistent witness and work in this world, even while we wait for the King of Kings. Let's pray. Lord, we've got a lot of work to do over the coming months and weeks as we go through Matthew 24 and 25. And again, I pray above all that we would be clear, uh, that we wouldn't get so lost in details and minutia uh, that we cease to become effective and that we wouldn't get so lazy that we don't work through the hard things. Lord, help us to be obedient. Help us to see what you've written. Help us to repent of those areas where we fall and fail. And then, Lord, give us a heart for those who still need to hear of the coming King. Lord, we thank you We praise you, for you are the good and great God of our salvation. Amen.